Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. We're back on Believe in Softball, presented by Believe Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jenna Becerra, and this is officially the 25th episode of this show. We started this back at the beginning of February, at the start of the college season, and here we are, 25 weeks later, living in a completely different world now compared to when we started. And in the midst of all the craziness, one thing that's been a constant is that our community never went away. Softball is powerful. Sports are powerful. Women in sports are powerful. We are powerful. And I've loved every second of trying to help bring that to life every week on this show with our incredible guests. So here's to 25. Thank you for helping us get to our silver. Now let's go through today's order. You know the drill, or if you're new to the show, welcome, and let me break it down for you. First, we'll cover our bases. I'll give a few updates all across the softball world. Then we'll head into today's interview with Lauren Lappin, Olympian coach and Stanford alum, need I say more? And we'll wrap things up with the double play tip of the week, the tip that helps us get better both physically and mentally. So let's get it going. Covering our bases. Now that we've reached number 25, I want to check in with just some reminders. This show is available anywhere you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and Believe.com. So if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button for the show. Share the episodes with friends or family who might be interested in the big one. Rate and review the show, please, especially those of you with iPhones and the Apple Podcast app. Leave feedback in the comments on those reviews or add a question in there, and I'll answer it here on the show. And you can, of course, do that on Twitter at JennaBecerra01 and Instagram at JennaBecerra as well. For any of you who might be new here, I'm very happy to have you. Maybe take a listen to this episode, see what you think, and then hit us up from there. Now for the deeds that you've been waiting for. Growth of the game internationally is a highlight right now. So at the youth level, the first girls fast pitch team in Ghana is here, and it's called Ghana Shock Softball. They just joined Twitter and they've been posting photos and videos of the girls practicing and playing, the coaches, some community members supporting and watching. Lots of people in the softball world and softball leaders have been retweeting and sharing. And to be honest, I teared up a little bit when I saw it. And I've said this before, but in all the conversations that we've had on this show, all the big names, the consistent goal everyone has is to grow the game and to inspire young girls. So to see that reach into a new part of the world, that's the goal. That's where it starts and the ripple effects come from there. And at the college level, we're seeing that. Baseball and softball became university sports in the UK officially. British Universities and Colleges Sport, BUCS, is the national governing body of university sport in the UK and they announced the official additions to their competition program. So it now features over 50 sports baseball and softball are included. And it makes me think of great players like Narissa Myers, for example, who's on the Great Britain national team and just continues to open up opportunities for more players when we do things like this. And by the way, the other sport that was added for this next season is wheelchair basketball. And I just love seeing the inclusivity for athletes of all backgrounds and abilities. Now here in the States on the amateur front, Premier Girls Fast Pitch and Perfect Game have formed a partnership. And these are two huge brands that have come together to create a new organization called PG Softball. So for background on the PGF organization, it was founded in 2009. 
And the big thing is, is that they put on travel ball nationals every year and recruiting and showcase tournaments for those looking to play in college as well. And it's really elite amateur talent, largely based in Southern California as the hotbed of softball in the US. Nationals used to often be for 18 gold in Oklahoma City, same field that you see the World Series on, but things kind of shifted in 2009 with PGF. Perfect Game is well known on the other hand as an elite youth baseball platform and scouting service. They put on showcases as well for college and pro scouts and it's really about exposure. So if you're college or MLB bound, you've likely played in a perfect game event, at least at some point. In fact, in last year's World Series championship, every player on Vanderbilt and Michigan's roster had except for one. In PG softball, they're basically combining forces. The new org's gonna produce national player rankings, consistent evaluation metrics, national scouting reports, as well as host the events. So it's really going to help individualize the sport and become more of a true player service. And it gives that exposure and opportunities nationwide for these girls the way that boys have had for years. And essentially now this new organization will become the largest elite youth softball platform and scouting service in amateur softball. And it goes back to the same thing, which is that visibility creates opportunity and that's what this is doing. Now on the pro side of things, Unfortunately, we've seen the first pro softballer to opt out of the upcoming Athletes Unlimited season. Sarah Gronawagen is a right-handed pitcher for Team Canada, set to be a Tokyo Olympian, Minnesota alum, was going to play in the league, but she posted a statement on Twitter, and she said a few things, but one of them was, we don't get a lot of opportunity to play professionally and earn an income in the sport of softball, but no amount of money is worth putting my health at risk at this time. So the background on her is that she has type 1 diabetes and she was diagnosed when she was nine years old even missed the 2018 world championships after contracting legionnaire's disease and being placed in a 10-day medically induced coma so really the bottom line here is that her health is vulnerable she's high risk she talked with her doctors trainers coaches and decided that moving to the u.s wasn't in her best interest right now and her statement didn't mention covid 19 explicitly but make no mistake, this is AU's first casualty due to the pandemic. And remember that this is the first season of Athletes Unlimited and it's set to start in Chicago at the end of August. And like I said before, you know, I'm nervous with where we're at and I hate to see the movement that is Athletes Unlimited not get a chance to get on the field this year because of this. But at least we can still, at the end of the day, hang our hat on the growth that we're seeing across the sport no matter what happens. So today was really a roundup of news from all levels. Someone who's crushed it at every level is also today's guest. So let's go ahead and head into the interview. She is a 2008 Olympian, silver medalist in Beijing, now head coach of the Chicago Bandits of the MPF, assistant coach at Missouri St. Louis, and earned two-time All-American and two-time Pac-10 Defensive Player of the Year awards when she was at Stanford, Lauren Lappin. Thank you so much for joining LAP. Thank you, Jenna. I'm pumped to be here. And this is actually officially the 25th episode of our show. And I feel like it's so poetic to have another Stanford alum on for that. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. I've got to have some Cardinal on on a landmark episode for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I actually, the first memory that I have of you when I first entered the program, like when I first became part of the Stanford family was my freshman year at Super Regionals in 2009 against Arizona. And we were playing at home. And we won 
the first game on Thursday night and you led the who's house C house chance after the game, like from the stands, it was like all the alum up there, you leading it, all of us on the team down on the field, doing it back and forth. And it was awesome. Do you remember that? I was actually, it's funny you bring that up because um, I was, I drove back from California the last two days uh, back to St. Louis. And so yesterday I was on my drive and I was like, man, I, I feel like that might be the, the last time, maybe the only time I saw you play live, um, probably I've seen you play live, like live and in person a couple of times. I'm like, she had to be on that team where we were up there hooting and hollering, acting like, you know, maniac alums and so fun. Such a fun memory. It was, it was I think so it was the awesome. first time I actually was back at Stanford watching a team play. A bunch of us came in for it. So that was, that was special too. Was cool. You guys did. It was like, you guys had a whole like cardinal contingent. It was awesome. Like, and as a freshman too, to see that energy, like right away, like first uh-huh. year, you know, it was so cool. I was just like, wow, we're, we're awesome. You know, <laughs> like, I love this. That's great. I love it. I love it. And but so that year, Maddie Kuhn and Missy Penna were my seniors, but they were your freshmen when you were a senior, right? Yes, they were. Our only two freshmen. Yep. I know, but just the two of them. Like what a mighty, like small but mighty class they had. Totally impactful, right? When they stepped on campus, that's for sure. Absolutely. And the funny thing about Maddie too is I always remember that she refused to bike anywhere. She just walked everywhere or she drove her yellow Mustang. I don't know if she had that like as a freshman, but that was it. Like refused, like total New Yorker, like not dealing with the biking. Totally. Totally. She's New Yorker through and through. Uh, still is, I imagine as well, but yeah, that's amazing. But I heard that you never had any biking accidents or anything. Is that true? Me personally? Yeah. Or our team? You. I don't know. Is this a, I feel like I probably did have a biking accident. Okay. This is like, I'm talking archives that I pulled up. I want to say that, you know what it was? It was Team USA, like fun facts about Lappin. Oh my gosh. From probably, I mean, I don't know, over a decade ago. Uh-huh. And it was, I think you had said in it, actually, you were like, I've never been in a biking accident. Mendoza can't say the same thing <laughs> or something like that. That's it was awesome. hilarious. That's hilarious. We had, we actually had a few on our Stanford team that were in like pretty aggressive bike accidents. Cause you know how it is like that that campus, there's bikes everywhere. Everyone bikes, people like fly around, but, um, but yeah, I, I probably lied in that interview about Mendoza because I was like notorious as a kid for just like riding my bike everywhere and not being very good at it, which sounds crazy. Cause like, who's not good at riding a bike, but I would fall and crash all the time, but that's funny. Well, I mean, there, we literally have a place on campus that we call the circle of death, like for a reason, because I don't know if like most campus, I didn't realize really until later that like most campuses don't bike ever, like people walk. It's because they're not as big. Stanford's such a massive campus. Totally. Except for Maddie Coon, like no one else wants to walk (laughs) everywhere. Yep. But actually we had, I had Dana Sorensen on the show Mm -hmm. too, and Coach Al. And Dana was talking about how she told the story of when she wiped out skateboarding and got hurt and that Coach Al was with her. And that was like, nobody knew that Coach Al was with her before that. And so I was like, wow, this is like, Coach Al has a flaw. I'm shocked. Right. Yep. Just one though. It was just that one moment for sure. Just one. And it wasn't even her. She was just there. Right. But, right. but you've had so many teammates. I mean, you played with them too, right? 
Yeah, I did. I did. I played uh, two years with both of them. Luckily, you know, it was uh, for me a blessing in disguise that Dana got hurt like she did because uh, I ended up getting to play with her an extra year. And their senior year, um, we went to the World Series. So, uh, which also was like, that was the year that I was an alternate in 04. And Kat and I were the youngest, Kat Osterman and I were the youngest on the team and we still had college eligibility. So they picked the alternates, selected the alternates right before the college season um, to, to give us a choice, whether to Olympic redshirt or continue with our team. And at that point, you know, that was Dana's senior year. So I was like, well, shoot, this is, and we had a great team. We had, you know, Al behind the plate, uh, Dana in the circle. Our class had a year of experience and we had, you know, Catalina Morris was a stud center fielder for us. And we just, we had a lot of good pieces. And so um, I, I chose to stay and play with Stanford and then meet up with the USA team after. And it ended up being the only time and the last time that Stanford was at the World Series. So uh, I, it ended up being the best decision I could make. But uh, yeah, Dana getting hurt. Um, extended our opportunity to play together and but I got to play with Tori. I played one year with Tori Nyberg and Kira Cheen's class. Um, Kira ended up being our coach right after she graduated so then I got to experience her on that side um, and then yeah I played I I mean then Maddie Kuhn yeah Maddie and Missy uh, we had a bunch of studs in between those two classes for sure. That's so cool I was gonna ask you about that actually because going to a World Series and being an Olympic alternate in the same year is a lot. <laughs> like, that's just a lot that's going on in one time. But you're right. I mean, hey, if you go to a World Series out of it, like, that's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't have been able to guess that. But, uh, but it, was, it was probably our best opportunity during my career. And I think I, some part of me probably saw that. And um, Dana and I had a good bond. And um, just those two uh, as a battery, you know, Dana and Alistair, it was like, it's, it's hard to get, you know, to a battery who have gone the whole way through together, basically, and for it to be their last year, knowing how important that is to try to put together a World Series run, it was like, man, it could be, you know, now or never, but um, I didn't think it was going to be because I thought we'd, we'd push hard uh, the next few years, but which we did, but just, you know, we faced Monica Abbott at Super Regionals one year. I think that was my senior year. So um, it's tough, as you know, to get to the World Series and um, even to go far into the postseason these days with how much parity there is in our sport. So I uh, feel really lucky. I've uh, got to get the Cardinal back, but uh, Al and Tori and Merch have, uh, have our Cardinal on the right path to start to do things again. So that's been fun. Oh, I agree. Seeing the just the climb over the last like couple of years since she's been there and all of them have been there has been so nice, like so fun to watch. Like as an alum, it's been nice because, you know, looking back at you watching us when we were in the Super Regionals, right? It's like, I, I want that feeling. Like I want to be there for them in the same way that you guys were there for us. Totally. And I think, you know, you talked to a lot of Stanford softball alum, certainly around uh, the classes I was there. I know the ones I talked to, it's, we have so much pride in in the university and being an alum of Stanford University in general, but of the softball program and our experience within it, you know, a lot of that has to do with, with Coach Rittman and the foundation he set and Coach and Coacha and Pick, um, who were our assistants my freshman year before they moved on. But um, the the foundation that they set, and it's it's awesome to see Alistair, who had that foundation as well, but is bringing her own. Um, her own twist on things and her own leadership uh, to something that we we really cherish and to see them start to you know climb back up is it's going to be fun I'm on board man <laughs> I'm same totally yeah. I'm with you but it is it is an interesting balance like you bring up an interesting thing which is there's 
tradition that's there in a culture like Stanford softball, but it's also about making it your own. There, there is like this balance that you have to figure out. Like, I feel like, you know, from Mendoza's days to your days, like you, you made, you and your teammates made it your own and then we had to make it our own and now they're making it their own. Like, that's just how it works. 100%. Totally. But with all of these teammates that you've had and all the hours you spent together, like what memories stick out to you the most, like on or off the field, either way? Oh man, I'm old, Jenna. Come on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so many. I, well, I think a lot about my freshman year and um, I just was just like, I'm, I mean, I'm a softball geek, you know, and I chose Stanford for a lot of reasons. All the reasons that Anyone you talk to who goes to Stanford chooses Stanford. Obviously, um, incredible academic institution, um, beautiful campus, awesome part of the country to be in. The weather's great. Um, but I just, I really felt a connection with the program. And um, my cousin was a catcher and an All-American for Stanford. Six years, uh, we're six years apart, so we never overlap. But she played with the uh, seniors that I came in as a freshman with. And um, I... So they played with my big, my older cousin, who was my idol growing up. And uh, so I got to play with them after having watched them play with her, which was fun. So I think a lot about like how I just, I went in there and I was like so excited to be a part of the program and to uh, try to, to get Stanford on the map. You know, that's why I chose it over some of the other options I had is, is let's get Stanford to the World Series. Let's win the World Series. So we were on a mission and though, though that class, you know, Kira's class, Tori Nyberg's class, they had a taste of it with the, I, the, what was it? 2000 team that went, right? Uh, 2001, I think. 2001? Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. We went in 04. Yeah. So they had gotten a taste of it uh, young in their career. So they were ready to do some big things their senior year. And so they kind of took our class, which was a talented class under their wing, right when we got to campus. So uh, we just, we had great leadership our freshman year and, and, um, they were also super fun personalities. So I think a lot about my freshman year and like off the field fun and, and on the field purpose. And, uh, I don't know, I think like Stanford's such a weird place. I love it. I think about all the traditional campus cultures and like everything, you don't get a car your freshman year. So everything is on a bike or on a golf cart, like the student athletes or students that had golf carts you're going to you know parties on campus everything's on campus so um it's just like and then you get in the classroom and it's like it's just such a it's just such an interesting place and I love it I, I loved it so much I think about like walking to class or riding my bike to class and just looking around and being like blown away that I was there at Stanford um I think about Coach Rip. I have a lot of Coach Ripman memories, which I, I love and I love the man. And um, he's been an awesome uh, human and mentor in my life and good friend. And I think about him a lot and like the things that he would say to us. And I mean, any anyone in our era that, I mean, you might know some, have you ever seen a deer stretch lap? Let's go, let's get this warm up going. You ever seen a deer stretch? You know, things like that. Or, you know, Stanford used to have the, the grass behind home plate and he was like very particular about how often we walked on it. So yes. grass, and he's got his, you know, uh, country accent and stuff. And uh, so a lot of good Coach Ritman memories. Um, man, I mean, the World Series was just awesome. I think about one specific game is that, uh, you know, it always is every, all our softball fans listening, uh, <laughs> there's always weather in Oklahoma City around the World Series. There's always delays. There's 
storm threats and, and tornado threats and all of that. And so we were playing Oklahoma in a barn burner of a game. And we had to, it was a late game and we were already delayed because games before us took forever. And so we were like halfway into our game and um, it was a tight ball game and we had to have an overnight delay. So I think like, I think about that. And my roommate was Catherine Hoffman, who's still a very good friend of mine. Um, and Hoff and I were like in back in our hotel room, just like with the blinds open, looking at how crazy it was outside, how treacherous the storm was and thinking like, there's no way in hell we're playing tomorrow, like finishing this game. How, like, how are we even going to do that? Anyway, so we had to wake up the next morning and um, play. I think we started at like 8 a.m. So the schedule, the rest of the day's schedule uh, could continue on. And it was uh, an elimination game and we ended up coming from behind and winning that game. And so I, I just, I think about that. The World Series in general, but that crazy game that we played against Oklahoma, um, and we were able to pull out of it. So that's a fun one for me too. But I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of the things about Stanford, I just like the first time driving down Palm Drive and like being in Palo Alto and going to football games and my first big game, you know, and um, all of that stuff. It's it's fun. So many good memories. So many different parts to it. I'm, I'm with you. I always wonder like, how can a student athlete recruit drive down Palm Drive and be like. Nah, it's not for me. You yeah. know, it's like not possible. No. And I'm with you too on like biking was almost therapeutic because mm -hmm. you're looking around and you can't help but just feel gratitude totally. for everything that's at your fingertips. Like mm -hmm. who, it's just a dream come true, realize. And I think people from other schools, like they feel that if it's right for them, they feel that too. And this just happened to be right for us. Totally, totally. And also the Coach Rittman accent, so funny you say that, because to me, I always felt like it came out more strongly, like if he was extra frustrated or mad, you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden it was be, it was super strong. And you're like, where did that come from? Yeah, emotions escalated, uh, the intensity of his accent for sure. Is so great, so great. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, it's funny the memories that stick out the most too. And it, that's why I said on or off the field because it's such a mix. Like you spend so much time with everybody doing different types of things and there's so many different aspects to school that it's always fun to hear because certain things you said, I'm like, oh, we went to the same Stanford. Like it was different, but it's still like certain things stay the same. Oh, totally. I guarantee it. And the, the generations before us too, there are certain things that totally just stay the same um, throughout or are passed down. But I think just about the campus in general and the school in general, the energy of it. It's like, I'm sure if I walked back on there as a freshman right now, I would be like, yep, that's the Stanford I experienced for sure. Totally. Even all the construction and all, it's still at the heart of it, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Totally. <laughs> One thing I loved about watching you is versatility. Love it. Like I, so my freshman year, I actually ended up playing everywhere except for behind the plate. So mm -hmm. I, I was pitching in the bullpen. I played infield, outfield, like all of it and hit lefty and righty, all of that stuff. And so seeing other people who have that versatility, I always like, I'm all about it because to me, it's like an X factor for the team. You know, like it gives mm -hmm. you options. It, it bolsters the team. It almost gives you energy knowing that you have that in your back pocket. And so with you, like you were a catcher and a shortstop and those are two leadership positions. Mm -hmm. So how did you throughout your career fill both of those buckets at the same time? Uh, I think it was a progression, really. I mean, I, I think about my career from when I was, you know, eight or five, really, but till I retired um, in the pro league. And um, I, I was most versatile, uh, probably post-college. 
Well, actually, I was probably most versatile early high school and then post-college. I, I started to be a little more specialized in those middle years. And that being said, if I, I know that if I didn't go to Stanford and play in that program at that time, I would not have been in the mix for the Olympic team. Um, you know, it, it, that's a little definitive to say, I guess, but I think that uh, I really credit my Stanford coaches and the Stanford program turning me into a true middle infielder. I played for the California Cruisers. My dad, Mel Sievers, uh, were our coaches. Mel's still in the organization, obviously, but um, Mel start, sort of set the foundation for my infield skills, but I didn't play a lot of middle infield when I was in travel ball. I played a lot of catcher from the time I started playing softball. Um, I played corners, mostly first, and then later in my high school career, I played a little shortstop. I mean, I played short for my high school team, but that was kind of by default. You know, you, you throw your most athletic kid at that short usually. So, um, but when I got to Stanford, Alistair was the catcher and, and Robin Walker, who was an awesome shortstop had just graduated. And um, they really recruited me to as a versatile athlete, but really to, to come in and play shortstop. And I wasn't a shortstop then. I certainly wasn't an elite shortstop and Sarah Pickering, coach pick, who was a stud. And I watched when I was growing up, she played uh, second base at Washington and then coach a um, Coach Alameda, they, those two spent hours upon hours really developing my middle infield skills specifically and turning me into a, a true shortstop. And um, I don't think I realized that until later in my college career, I really like came into my own. Um, but I mean, they, I wouldn't have been a Pac-10 defensive player of the year if it hadn't been for those two at that position, maybe behind the plate, but I think that because I went to Stanford and really developed my uh, skills in the middle infield, that coupled with my experience behind the plate and my ability to play catcher at a high level, that um, opened doors for me with the, the USA team. And with a uh, limited roster size on the Olympic team, that's something you need, you know, um, Tri Flowers, Leah Miko, um, those utility type players. Like I, I was one of those. So it immediately put me in the mix as as being a true utility. So um, anyway, I don't even know what your original question was, but I think that <laughs> I, I love that I love that you bring it up. And I get asked that question a lot because I ended up being just a really true utility, um, specifically towards the end of my career. But I credit a lot of it to my Stanford experience. You know, if I had gone to UCLA, they were recruiting me to come in and catch because newbie had just graduated and if I'd gone to Arizona, I would probably have been behind the plate more and things like that. So I would have kind of, I still would have been able to play in the field if I needed to, but I would, I wouldn't have been able to really identify as a shortstop. So um, Stanford did that for me specifically pick and coach. A, it extended my career. It opened up opportunities for me to play beyond college and really truly to this day, it has shaped me into my career. You know, now as a coach, being able to, oh, you asked about the leadership and all of that of catching and shortstop. So there we go, full circle. <laughs> but um, it, it, my uh, experience playing different positions, my versatility it is, has really benefited my coaching career and being able to see the game from a catching perspective, but also see the game from a middle infield perspective and outfield perspective. I played outfield with USA and, and in the pro league a little bit too, being able to coach all different positions and see the game, you know, 
in that way. I mean, you see a lot of catchers, Al being one of them, Courtney Dyfel being another one, a lot of catchers who are head coaches now. And it's because of that perspective from behind the plate and managing a pitching staff and, and uh, those types of leadership skills that really benefit uh, the skills necessary to be a decent to a good coach. So, um, so yeah, I, I loved, I loved both positions. I loved being able to contribute in any way I could. Um, and it really has allowed me to, to see the game from a lot of different angles. So. Coach Al actually talked about that a bit, just in terms of managing pitchers, like you manage players now as a coach, like there are so many ties to everything. And then even just growing up, like it shapes you. It's just, that's how it is. Totally. Speaking of other angles, like you also hit lefty and righty at different times, right? So it's like, we're talking defensively, but also offensively, you're doing that too. Does that help you with coaching or, or did it help you? Do you feel like see the field better, if that makes sense? Oh, totally. Totally. Uh, I I could take this answer in a lot of different directions but really it's I because I had to learn how to slap and hit from the left side but I I started I started mostly to be able to do multiple things from the left side and use my slightly above average speed to get on base more and stuff like that Um, so to to understand the ideas behind slapping and the mechanics behind slapping uh, has allowed me to coach slapping you know like I can I can decently <laughs> uh, manage coaching slappers at, at this level. So um, it has enabled me to do that. But also, uh, like, I had a teammate in the pro league, Bianca Mejia. She's played at Long Island U, and she's a SoCal kid, too, like us. And uh, But she's ready power hitter. And if she was not swinging it well or not seeing it well or whatever, she would just in BP flip to the left side just to gain new perspective, just to get out of her own way, get out of her own head. And um, so that's kind of what it did for me, too, in – uh, becoming a lefty hitter uh, and slapper. It's, it wasn't until late in my career. I think I approached Coach Fritman about it, like going into my senior year, maybe my junior year, because um, I was trying to, I was a, a bubble player for Team USA and I was uh, trying to kind of break that roster spot, get into the roster. And so I had a really honest conversation with Coach Candrea and had him shoot me straight and he did. And I needed to figure out a way to be a more impactful offensive threat, whether that be from the left side or right side, right side was my natural. But um, anyway, so I kind of just dove in like, okay, let's just see what happens with this without letting my, you know, right-handed swing, get less attention or anything like that. Let me just put a little extra work and see if I can make this happen. And, and I was able to, uh, and it was super fun. And I think it, it ended up helping my, myself from the right side of the plate. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's allowed me to coach slapping. Uh, at the time as a player, I was able to mix it up. And if, you know, if I was facing Monica or Kat, no, I'm standing in the right side of the box and I'm going to freaking get my feet wide and just try to barrel up the ball. <laughs> I wasn't going to go in left-handed, but if I, you know, wasn't seeing it well from the right side and I could get in left-handed or a certain a specific pitcher or anything like that, it just kind of allowed me more options um, as a player. So that was fun too. I agree because, so my freshman year, I, I, I had done some things on the left side growing up, um, but mostly like I was recruited right-handed, all that. And coach started to just flip me actually my first lefty at bat I told Danielle Laurie this on the show but was against her just like randomly like hadn't done any reps or anything he was like all right just turn around I was like what (laughs) but (laughs) but, you know I put it in play because there is something about on the left side you're 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 trying to put it in play like you're trying you're not necessarily trying to like swing for the fence here like you're just trying to you're getting you kind of naturally get back to basics right so then yes it does help you on the right side eventually Mm -hmm. Totally. Totally agree. But the thing is, is that people say, you know, the, the saying is jack of all trades, master of none. 
<laughs> right? But you had success in a way that breaks that mold. So if you had to kind of like pinpoint why did it work, you know, like how? Well, first of all, it's funny you bring up bring that up because I, I think I had a, a, a slight insecurity about that being the case or a chip on my shoulder. Like, I don't want to just always be the kid who can do it all like a little, you know, or be everyone's backup because you can stick me anywhere. Like I want to be freaking, I want to be the one, you know? And, um, and I, I, I specifically felt that more on USA. I mean, it's obviously the best players in the world and you're trying to just like keep your head above water and like stay afloat and all of that. But, um, but I, I think honestly, I just, I, worked at it first of all like I was open to playing different positions I'm lucky that I have a an athletic background um my family was into all sports I was encouraged to play multiple sports all through until I went to college which I did I I played four sports in high school I played club soccer until I you know went to college so I think that just increased my athleticism uh, my speed my ability to adapt um and just like move my body, you know, differently. And uh, that allowed me to be, uh, I think, just a better defender specifically. Um, so that foundation coupled with, you know, some hard work and, and drive, like I had a, I was on a mission to put myself in the best position to make the Olympic team. And I knew that wasn't going to be beating out newbie behind the plate or, um, or even JT for that matter, or beating Tasha out at shortstop or, you know what I mean? It was, it was to push them and to, to, to be in the mix for sure, but um, I was going to make that team as a utility player and someone who could do it all. So Coach Kendrea used to say, hey, don't let anyone call you that. Don't let anyone call you a jack of all trades, a master of none. You're a Swiss army knife. And so I'll always remember that. Like, no, you give me, you're my Swiss army knife in my pocket. And, um, and I felt that. I mean, Coach Kendrea is like the master of instilling confidence in his players. So he, he really did that with me in that sense. But I think I just, I love the game and I'm still a geek for it. You know, I was thinking about today, how these, this four and a half months of quarantine, uh, I don't think I've gone more than like two months in my entire life. I'm, thir- I'm 36 years old. I started playing when I was five or six. I don't think I've gone the last 30 years, uh, longer than a month really without touching a softball. I've like flipped it around, but I haven't done anything um, in the game except talk about it and learn about it and try to stay connected to the game, but to physically not, you know, swing a bat, a hit fungo or like, it's, it's crazy. So anyway, I just, I have an extreme passion for the game. So I I was never opposed to going to the field and taking extra reps and just kind of diving in. So it took a lot of reps, a lot, a lot of reps, but also I have to say that I entered the USA program at a young age too. I was, I think I was 17, 18, my first tryout and it was, you know, Lisa and Bustos and Newbie and Tasha and Lovey and Jamie Clark and uh, Laura Berg and, you know, Bory Hergen and Finch and all those guys. And I was like a nugget. Like I was just like wide eyed, like what is even going on? And I was lucky enough after my freshman year, I, I was on the, I was an alternate, uh, I was named the roster. So I was training on a regular basis with the best in the world. And so I was just, I had these models. I just would get behind them and try to emulate what they were doing. And uh, at every position I was trying, I was at first base with uh, Taraya and Leah and Finch. And I was at sh- the middle infield with Lovey and Tasha and Jamie Clark. It's like, how can you not, how can your level just not rise every time you go out on the field? And because I was already viewed as a utility player, coach was putting me everywhere. So I had that opportunity at every position I was at. So, um, so yeah, work, uh, athletic background, 
work ethic, and then just exposure to uh, some of the best to ever play our game at every position and, and be put in that position to, to try to just stay afloat with those guys. So. Well, iron sharpens iron, that's for sure. But what I like about what you said too is that it's extra reps. Just because you do more things doesn't mean, oh, I'm still gonna take the same amount of time that I did before to practice and just shove it all into that. No, 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 now, now we have to do more. Like that's how it works because you have to get, you have to give the right attention to each part of your game. And that's why I love the Swiss Army knife. I wish that that's how I was thinking about it freshman year because yeah. that's perfect. Because like, yeah, at any time, I can pull out that tool and it is ready to go. Like it's not any less than anything else. I love that. Like yeah. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna use that. Good one. I'm, I know. <laughs> I've used it a couple times since too, <laughs> but it is a good one and it's so true. I mean, every team needs it, and those are the the players that can get, as you know, like a little bit overlooked or not even overlooked, but feel under, underappreciated, and to just express value in that, to talk about it, uh, to give power to it. I think is is super important. Um, you know, for the coaches listening, I think that that's the best thing you can do, you know, for any, any player, any young athlete is to instill confidence in them, but certainly the ones that aren't the, the every day at one spot, um, or the, the cleanup hit or the lead off or, you know, find the little, the, the little valuable parts of their game and, and speak to it. I love it. But the other thing is the impression that I've always had from you, from watching you play, from, from even just the imprint you left on Stanford and what I would hear about from like the Maddie Coons and the Missy Pennas, et cetera. And even from seeing you in the stands, like our, my freshman year at Super Regionals, like you just have this like next level energy and buy-in. And I, my understanding from everything I've seen is like, you just work your ass off, right? It's like, what is the source of that enthusiasm? I don't know. I, I mean, I'm a fiery, I, I, I was a fiery kid. I've always like been just a kind of a fiery, competitive, spirited person. Um, but I, I love it. Like I truly love the game. I love, I think that in my adult life and in my, in the, in my coaching experience, I've really learned that this is what I want to do because I love the game, but because I love the game. It's the greatest impact I can make on the world and uh, my student athletes specifically. I mean, obviously I'm coaching uh, the bandits and some of the best in our game right now, but specifically our college level student athletes, if I can empower them to, to, you know, explore what they love, explore what makes them passionate and uh, make an impact on them through my passion for the game. That's the greatest service I can give to the world. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I love it. And I think that there's nowhere else I want to be. I just, I am a geek when I'm out there. I, I am lucky to be surrounded by some really awesome people um, who I coach with, who I coach administratively, all of that. I've, I've been in, put in some really good positions. And I think that, you know, I do, I come from a family who loves sports, but I also come from a family who is just really supportive of, of each other and empowering. And so I want to give that to the game, you know, and in any way I can. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a nut. I'm out there. <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to be out there, I might as well like be all about it. Right. So <laughs> whether yeah. carrying on my Stanford Cardinal or hitting fungo or whatever. But, um, I mean, as if you ask people who played against me or um, played with me when I was certainly in college, but after that, like I was, I was fiery. I was competitive almost to a fault um, when I learned how to control my emotions more and use my fire and my passion in a positive way and in a little bit more of an even keeled way, I became a better player. So that's been the challenge um, as a coach too, is I can get fiery. I can get fired up at umpires. I can, you know, um, get, get riled up, but uh, to, to 
turn the page and to continue to the next moment, but also maintain who I am. So I, I love that people notice that, that people see me smiling and loving the game and loving, you know, uh, being around my players and stuff like that. So it's, that's the greatest thing I could ask for is that someone notices that um, about me when I'm around the game. Well, I mean, I can tell you, I definitely noticed it <laughs> and still do uh, to this day and every, cause it, that's the thing is like when it's, when it's something that's innate like that, it just ripple effects out to everything that you do. So then yes, as a coach, you have the same energy that you had as a player, right? Like it's like that, cause that's the core of who you are. 100%. It is 100% who I am. So it's like exacerbated when I'm around the game or when I'm around people that just like fill my cup, you know, it's like, then I'm on talk about next level. I'm like out of my mind with uh, just being like overstimulated and stuff, but yeah, it is who I am. And I love the game and there's no place I'd rather be um, than with my people or at the field. So um, really lucky that that's what I get to do for a living. And I had heard actually when I was at Stanford that this exact energy that we're talking about, I had heard that like, really like you were like, I'm going to be on this USA roster. Like that's what's happening. And you're going to do everything that you could to make it happen. And that you just did it right. Like that's so simple. It's not that easy to do that, but it's a simple concept where you're like, no, this is what I want. This is what I'm going after. But to hear it from you is really cool, you know, to hear like what actually you were feeling and thinking uh, during that time. I've thought a lot about when I talk to young players uh, or youth or anything, I, I talk a lot about this, but I, I mean, a lot of stars had to align for me to make it. It's unrealistic for any of us to think you just put in the work and then it happens. Um, True. And th- but the work is essential to putting yourself in a position for it to happen. So I definitely had the belief that I could do it. And I thought I could make an impact on that team and I could push some, some people to get better. I knew I had the spirit and the energy And um, I knew that if I committed to a plan, if I committed to pouring everything I had into that goal and uh, figuring out a way to just check every single box along the way, if I didn't make that team, I was going to be, I was going to be disappointed for sure. I would have been heartbroken, but I would have been able to sleep at night because I poured my, I poured my everything into it. I did everything I could possibly do to make that roster. And if I didn't, it was just the stars weren't aligning. So yeah, I mean, our our country specifically with this sport, there's so many damn good softball players um, who play at a really high level. So it it get it comes down to some intangible things too, which I do feel lucky that I had, and um, I've been put in situations and experiences that have really um, allowed me to grow in those intangible ways. But it was about pouring everything I had into it so that I could sleep at night, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the circumstances. But yes, certainly when I was at Stanford, cause I got a taste of the goal in 04, like they took, you know, they take the alternates to the Olympics for a reason. And so you see that team who you, you know, trained every single day for nine months with, uh, you see them take the medal stand, but you're in the stands and you're nine. I was 19 years old at that time. I, that was when my dream of making that team, my goal was like, refocused like I was recharged okay now I know what it takes and now I have these next three and a half years to commit myself to doing everything I possibly can to make that team so and you wore number 37 for (laughs) USA but you wore number 27 at Stanford now I know that obviously everyone knows that Jenny Finch was number 27 but like a lot of athletes, you know, too, we all like to keep our jersey number and our social media handle. Like I still do it on Twitter. I'm like, it's been 12 years 
like, right? or not 12 years, it's been eight years. Wow. I'm making myself sound older even, geez, <laughs> but you know, and I still have it, right. You have it too. You have 37 yeah. in your handle. Is there a significance behind that number? Any meaning? Yeah. Huge significance. So I actually was a number 12 my whole life. And so that, that number still has like my heart, um, 37 more now, but 12 was like my number from when I was a pup, you know, my dad wore it, my, my brother wore it. Um, and so it was just like tradition. I wore it all the way through travel ball, but Dana Sorensen was number 12 at Stanford. So there was no way in hell I was getting that number. So, um, so then I wore 27. I don't even honestly remember why I chose 27. I think so anyway, so then flash forward to making the USA team. I think it was like my second USA team that I made that I was like having to choose a number that would potentially stay with me if I continue to make the roster. So um, my cousin, who we've already talked about, Stanford grad, Kelly Wigginton, now she's Kelly Fermisco. Um, but she was, like I said, she was my idol growing up. She's a catcher. I was a catcher. Um, I watched her play. It was the first time I watched college softball in person was watching my cousin play at Stanford. And um, she was in the mix with USA. She was on the junior world team. Um, I forget what year it was, but she was on the junior world team. She went to Olympic trials, some Olympic tryouts. She was in that mix and never made the roster um, for the national team. So when I was selected to the roster and choosing my number, I wanted to honor her and the path that she put me on by being my, my idol growing up. And so kind of carrying out what the groundwork she laid with me making that team. So 37 was to honor my cousin Kelly and now it's, uh, now I'm like 37 all the way. It's, I, I'm old, I'm 36 and I've been wearing it since I was like 19. So um, it's been a long time. And so now, yeah, that's the significance behind 37. And I'll probably have that Twitter handle as long as I'm alive and there's Twitter. So <laughs> no, but I kind of got the chills because see, this is how athletes are. Every little part about what we do, what we represent on the field we put thought into and it matters. Mm -hmm. And this, that's just such a full, cool, full circle story. That's like, it's family. Like this is, I love this shit. Like this is the stuff that I love. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and like we, she played at Stanford and then I, um, because of her playing at Stanford, I felt a connection to the program. I went to a few camps when I was in junior high and got, um, got to know the coaching staff. And I had a trust there that, um, was just built in from my years of following the program and following her experience within the program and feeling very familiar with Coach Rittman, um, his family, and Coach Ed Pick. And so it felt like a very comfortable uh, place too. It felt like family. But I will say, like, even just talking about it, I, I like, I, when I was a little freckle faced, dirty kneed kid running around the softball fields, my cousin played for the Fresno Force, same cousin Kelly. my cousin Sydney played for them too her younger sister but they would come down to Southern California and those were the players I really first watched the game play it was you know it was Kelly playing with uh Courtney Dale and Amanda Scott and the they all went and played these big at these big time programs back in you know the late 90s early 2000s and I got to watch them when I was like six years old playing at you know a Huntington Beach complex or you know wherever in Westminster Park and like stuff then I was playing there later but that's and Kelly wore 37 back then too so um so it's kind of honored like the full circle the full realm of of all of it for me there's just always layers to representation and I love that Mm -hmm. totally it's so cool and now you know 
Like I said in your intro, and as everybody pretty much knows, obviously, you were a silver medalist in 2008. So when you heard that the Olympics were coming back, like, what's the reaction? And that's such like a basic question, right? But what I, what I'm kind of getting at is, is a couple different things. One is that like, I know that you and your teammates, like you're wired for gold, right? So in some ways, like I asked Monica Abbott when she came on the show, I was like, is this a revenge story for you? A comeback, like a new journey? Like what is Tokyo to you? You know, because of, it's been so long, 12 years since the last time that we had softball in the Olympics and you're retired now. So you're not going for it the same way again in Tokyo, like Monica is, but based on how you cheered us on at Stanford again, and like, I, you're going to be there for team USA. So What's the feeling there in that regard? Like, what what would you say to them? Like, maybe that you wish you would have known in two thousand eight. Wow, that is that's a layered question. So yeah. Lot, <laughs> well, to answer that last part of it, I would say to them that this opportunity is worth every ounce of their energy and their soul and their commitment to the group, and um, and that is you know, you, you have ultimately have one mission, but it's, it's not about Japan. It's not about revenge against Japan for me. I mean, I still get a little sour taste in my mouth, even though I have a true love for that culture, having played in the Japanese league and all of that, but it's not about that. It, it is about committing yourself to gold. I mean, coach Kendra used to say it in 04, um, specifically, but, um, we don't want to win. We want to dominate. So it wasn't about just doing well enough or just doing enough training. It was about committing every ounce of our energy to the group's goal, which was gold. And so, and that's it, it was blinders on who cares about our opponents, who cares about, honestly, our family, they're here to support us and enable us, but we are on this mission with this group. And now this group has the challenge, this 2021 team has the challenge of this extended kind of period, which is bizarre and weird. And I'm not even sure I have anyone has advice for that, except to just stay the course and manage your um, energy for sure. But, but I would say that it's, it's just, it's really about that group and keeping your blinders on to your mission as one unit and, um, and to soak it all up. I mean, hell, it's the best freaking experience of life. And, and that's awesome. And not many people get to do it and who knows who will get to do it again. So this specific group, I know that we felt like in 08, like, you know, there was a lot of mixed emotions, um, even before the Olympics started, but you know, for a lot of us in my generation, it was me, it was Monica, uh, Kat, it was, uh, Andrew Duran, it was Vicky Galindo. It was, there was a handful of us that were kind of that next wave, you know, Tasha would have probably played one or two more Olympics. I mean, she ended up playing in Japan long enough to play two more Olympics and all of that. But, um, we, we were brokenhearted at the, the fact that this was going to be for me, Caitlin, Dre and Monica, our only Olympic opportunity. And so when we lost, it was like, well, shit, like we lost, you know, we did not accomplish our goal. Um, it was, it was that coupled with, we don't get to do this again, um, at least for the foreseeable future. So I think that you have to try to eliminate this group for 2021 has to try to eliminate all the other factors and just stay really focused on, on what their mission has been, um, and to go out and, and dominate, like coach Kendra would say, like, don't just win the thing, dominate it. And it's harder to do, um, now than ever probably, but they can, and, um, you have to have that mindset, but I will, yes, I will be in the stands, um, in Tokyo. I did have tickets to go, um, jerseys ordered and everything. And, um, so I'll be there in 2021, God willing, 
you know, cheering like a crazy person like you've seen out of me and uh, super excited to see that group and honestly see all the countries participating. I mean, we have a lot of Americans representing other countries and, and um, doing such a good job of it. I'm excited to see Team Mexico and Italy. You know, I, I have uh, friends and, and family basically on, on almost every team there. So it's going to be it's going to be awesome to see them all you know, go out and perform and fight for a medal. There's going to be crazy competition for a medal. Um, I'm excited to see Canada too. Some team former teammates play, but ultimately I'll have uh, USA uh, all over my body and uh, be hooting and hollering, chanting USA and excited to see them compete. Of course, never, never would have doubted that for a second on my end. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you mentioned Team Mexico though. And, and you know, I, last week had Sachel Palacios uh, on the show and I've had Daniel Tool, you know, Tooley, they've both talked about how, you know, their journey to, to the Olympics, but also just about how they love their experience with the Chicago Bandits and with you mm-hmm. uh, having been their coach. And, you know, there've been lots of changes with MPF teams over the years, but the Bandits seem to have been a really steady force. And so what do you think it is about the Chicago team? Like, what is it about the Bandits? Well, um, I'll speak to my experience within the organization in, in a few moments, but um, just if you look at the black and white of the circumstances in Rosemont, it's amazing. The only stadium specifically built for a professional women's sports team is the Bandit Stadium. So that says, I mean, that says a lot right there. And the commitment from the village of Rosemont having taken over uh, the organization when the former ownership could no longer um, they wanted to keep the Bandits brand a part of the community. They uh, understand the importance of having a professional women's sports team and the impact that can have on the future of their community, the youth in their community. So then that, knowing that commitment that the, the mayor of Rosemont, Brad Stevens, and the village of Rosemont kind of stepped up to the plate and took over ownership when um, a few years ago, it just, it really speaks to to who they are as a community. And so then speaking to my experience within the organization, um, I, I, I get to see that commitment and that passion firsthand from a group of amazing humans. Um, I think that the facilities there are second to none in professional women's sports. Uh, we are treated like professionals. They, they treat these women um, as they should be. Uh, we need the, the opportunity for salary increase and pay. Obviously all of that has to happen, but um, Chicago has just an incredible culture and it's something that I think is like it's really rare in pro sports in general it's a culture that feels almost like more like a uh, college program um, a really tight-knit college program uh, but it starts from the it starts from the top really and the mayor and Tony Kalmine the general manager of the bandits really established that that culture top down and the commitment to the human side of things, not just the professional or financial side of things. It's about the human first with a mindset of business as well. So, um, and the players feel that they feel that from the mayor and from Tony. And, um, I mean, I got to coach with newbie for newbie my first year in the Bandits organization. That, so that's really special to my heart. Um, Tori Tyson was an awesome revisit to my past because I played against her sister, Dina for, uh, over a decade. I mean, youth, like when we were nine years old, all the way through college. So knowing the Tyson family and then getting to know Tori Tyson on a personal level 
um, through coaching with the bandits that that was a really special experience. And, and, um, you know, our whole softball world knows Snoopy. You, you don't, you know, she's one of my best friends now, but you can only imagine the culture that she established to not just for, uh, winning and competitiveness, but for fun and family and all of that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, in my experience, it's just, there's, there's nothing better in our sport at the professional level, I think, then the commitment that you see from Rosemont um, and the facilities that we have there, and then just the culture that we've been able to establish, you know, from our front office all the way down through our players. And that's an important piece too, is the players and making sure you have the right mix of, of humans in there um, who are also stud softball players. So, uh, so that's, it's, it's an awesome environment, awesome group of people feel really lucky to be a part of it. And now we just got to continue to push the envelope on really establishing the professional platform. Absolutely. Could not agree more, especially with that last part. But I think it's interesting that you said it almost feels like a college program in terms of that kind of like inexplicable bond and feeling that you have as a team. And it is hard to do in pro, like to take that, what you get from that school pride atmosphere and plug that into a pro atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So with your experience too, with Missouri St. Louis, you know, you're coaching college players, but then here you are coaching pro players as well with the bandits. How is it similar or different to do that? Well, the game is the game. So that's how it's similar is that, um, and I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear, maybe not, but um, I hope not actually, but be surprised to hear how much the, the pro players want to continue their development and um, evolve within the game. And I think that's what our, so we had Chitty on one of our team Zooms for Missouri St. Louis. And um, it was awesome because our players, I think they were wide eyed and wild. Like we surprised them with it. And um, Chitty's just an awesome human. Um, she's a leader in our sport for all the reasons that we would want someone to be. And, but our players, I think after we did kind of a, a recap with them after just uh, our staff and them. And I think that they just really felt it was relatable. Like, she was one of them, which I think is really cool. I mean, you have someone who's one of the best in the world talking to a high level D2 program. We have a very solid culture here um, in our program and, and to have them feel connected and relate to Chitty like that was, was really cool. So I think that it's the game's the game, the commitment level and the drive is the same, regardless of your level. If you really love the game, like that is consistent. And then I think that it's just, it's as far as coaching a group at, at the pro level versus the college level, it's much more about managing the, the people side of it and the playing time. And I mean, you go to a pro roster and you have literally 20 to 25 All-Americans, multi-time All-Americans. You have 20 to 25 players who have never left the starting lineup ever in their entire life. You have the, every pitcher expects to get the ball all, all the time, or they go from pitching 90% of their college games to understanding that at the pro level, you can't go seven innings very often, you know, very rarely do you see a pitcher last through an opposing lineup like that. So it's, it's, um, it's about kind of that learning curve when rookies come in and then, and um, understanding the balance between getting everyone the playing time so that they're ready to go because everyone's a stud and then also settling into a lineup and roles and all of that. And that being said, I mean, you get that at the college level too, at every level. So it's, it's, you know, everyone wants to play, but if you can really try to create a culture that is just supportive of each other and understand the big picture and have honest conversations, um, I think that that's, that's something that's consistent in every level. That's very true. Well said. Last year was your first year as head coach of the Bandits. 
and you were coaching staff of the year in the mm -hmm. MGF, right? We so were. the that that's a big deal, A, but B, that's a transition from an assistant coach role to a head coach role. And for the coaches out there, you know, what were the biggest transition points or what guidance would you give to coaches looking to make that jump? Well, first I have to point out that it's the work that our group did on the field um, and the record that they were able to put forth in the um, accomplish, I guess, in the regular season that um, got us that honor and recognition was a really cool recognition to get because it is representative of exactly what I just said is that group and that group deserves that. And to see them so excited for us was cool too. And um, Amber Flores and Lance McMahon, I mean, we had a ball coaching together. And so th that was super special to, to receive that award with them and in representation of our group. But I would say that the biggest thing is to stay true to who you are, understand who you are and understand what you want to accomplish. And then just working through that, like through that lens is the most important thing. I mean, couldn't go and try to be newbie and I, I couldn't like go and try to expect our group to respond to me. Like they respond to newbie. I'm not newbie. And, um, and nor do I want to be, I mean, I love, I love her, <laughs> but like, that would be unauthentic of me to go out there and try to be newbie. Um, so I think it was, it was figuring out kind of on the front end. Okay. Like what are my vulnerabilities to this experience? Like, what do I need to have on my radar for myself, for the group? And then who am I? If I can figure out who I am and, and always kind of make decisions through that and um, stay true to that, then, then I'm going to be able to like do an all right job managing this group. So um, I think the other thing is to get people around you. Um, this might be the most important thing, battle with authenticity, but is to, to get people around you who you trust and you enjoy. And that's what Nubi did. Um, I think with Tori and I, uh, we certainly had a, a had a hell of a time, and so did I with uh, Lance and Amber Flores last year. And I I really feel lucky that I had those two to enjoy the process with, to check me on things, to be able to be honest with me about things, and to really feel like we were a group. You know, they I felt like I was coaching that team. You know, my first head coaching experience didn't feel like I was the head coach. Now, did I have to have some gut check moments where I said, "All right, Lauren." like have the hard conversation. You can do this, you know, look it in the eye. And, um, I felt empowered that I was able to do that. And, um, they kind of gave me that, that empowerment too. So, uh, trust yourself, know who you are and trust it, and then surround yourself with people who you trust and enjoy. You know, Tori Tyson was on the show too. She's awesome. And mm -hmm. it feels like you guys really have had a Swiss army knife kind of coaching staff, which mm -hmm. I love. Yep. Totally. We have, we have we kind of like attacked it from all angles, uh, both on the physical side and the personality side. So <laughs> have it all covered. Covering all your bases. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> well, this has been awesome. And I really mean this when I say like, I could just continue this conversation for hours and hours all day. Um, and it. would love to actually another time if you're up for it. Yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> but um, I wanted to wrap up quickly with a game called Safer Out. It's really, really fun. No pressure. But basically, no I'll, I'll just bring something up and I'll ask you uh, if it's safe or out. So if you agree with it or you like it, it'd be safe. Or if you don't, you don't agree, you don't like it, then you'd call it out. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So first one, right-handed leadoff hitters, safe or out? Safe. I had a feeling. especially. <laughs> Hannah Flippin, great point. Actually, Chitty let off for us for like the 
last stretch of our bandit season last year, but Flip is one of the best righty leadoff hitters uh, to ever play the college game. So yeah, right. I'm safe. I'm going safe with that. Makes sense. Also just like in terms of, we talk about versatility, but that doesn't really matter. It's just that traditionally, like back in the day, it was like always this lefty slapper, you know what I mean? So people, but I think we've really expanded that as a sport since then, but it's just curious. Yeah, like it. Good, good leadoff question there. No pun intended. <laughs> well, we uh, we have a runner on clearly. It was safe. So, second one is um, fireworks after games. Safe or out? Uh, can't say neutral, can I? Safe. The fans love it. <laughs> they do love it. Also, I know you grew up near Disneyland, right? So I did. Yeah, I would watch the uh, Disneyland fireworks from my front lawn. Did that make you like Disney more or less, do you think? Living near it? Yeah. Um, I'm not like a big Disney person, but I don't hate it. Like, I haven't been in years, but I loved being near it. I mean, we, like I said, fireworks, that was a bonus. Um, I didn't wasn't close enough where I had to, like, deal with any of the expansion or traffic or anything, but kind of got the perks of proximity still. Uh, like, all our high school, like, you know, grad night and all that was at Disneyland and Yeah, same. And I loved it. I mean, I'm a huge Disney person. That's like an entire different like podcast episode if we're going to go down that road. But, but I was curious because I'm like, you live so close. That's like my dream. Yep. Five minutes away. (laughs) Well, awesome. All right. Two runners on then two safes. I love it. Well, thank you again, Laugh. This was awesome. I I loved just catching up, chatting about everything from Stanford, but everything else that you've done since it's just been great. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Super fun. We'll we'll do it again for sure. Holding you to that. (laughs) All right. I'm in. I'm in. Well, that was fun. (laughs) I just get fired up talking to people like Lap who have just got a great grip on who they are. So this week's double play tip is going to be about getting a grip. You know, I love a good pun, but really it's how to grip the ball to make a throw. And physically, it's about mastering the basics. And so think about doing this in warm-ups during your throwing progression. First, you want to look at the seams. If you're staring at the ball about to grab it, you can see the curve of all the seams along the ball. And when you're looking at it, the seams should look like a C or a backward C. And your fingertips are just going to lay on top of the top seam of that C. Now, in terms of finger placement, you're going to focus on three, your index finger, your middle finger, and your ring finger. Those are going to go on top of that seam. Baseball focuses on the first two fingers, your index and your middle, but because softballs are bigger, we go with three with an emphasis on those first two. And your thumb and pinky sort of just grab the sides of the ball from there. And you do all of this taking into consideration that the spin's gonna come off your top fingers when you snap the ball to throw. So to ensure that you do this well, you can also put black tape straight down the middle of the ball, all the way around. Again, align so that you see that C and backward C. And you align that middle finger on that tape. And so if you're snapping right when you're playing catch, the spin's going to be tight and the tape will still look like a black line on the ball when it's in the air. If not, the line's gonna look wobbly and you'll be able to see that. So if you understand the seams, got your fingers in the right place, then it's about the way you hold it in your hand. So what you wanna make sure is that you're actually holding that ball in your fingers and kind of that padding on the upper part of your hand just underneath them. That's where it will live surrounded by your pinky and thumb, but really the ball's not touching your palm. Of course, if you're a little kid and you don't have big enough hands yet, that's one thing, but as you get older and you're starting to hone your craft, no palm touching. So on the mental side of things, 
keeping all of this in mind, but you also want to match the speed of the game. So now we're talking about grip when you're actually fielding balls in a game or live reps at practice. You're moving fast. You don't have time to check that the seams are right for the C and align your fingers on the ball, et cetera, when you have less than three seconds to throw somebody out at first. But there are still ways to ensure that you have a solid grip on the fly to set yourself up to make a good throw. So a couple things. First, when you're transferring the ball out of your glove, let's say you fielded it and you're trying to get a throw off. You wanna see it, the ball all the way into your glove. You hear this a lot on defense, but you also wanna see it out of your glove. So you see it in, you generally use two hands. And when you trap the ball with your bare hand in your glove, cover that ball in your web, squeeze it with your fingertips and then pull it out and get your arm and body into throwing position. But thinking about seeing that ball in, out, everywhere that it's going, it won't just give you a better grip because you'll actually see yourself grip it, but also decrease your chance of bobbling the ball too. Bobbles don't just happen on a bad hop, right? They can also happen when you're transferring the ball out of your glove and this helps eliminate that. Now, the other thing is when you're grabbing the ball with your bare hand, let's say for example, you're in the infield and there's a bunt dying in the dirt with a fast runner and you're running up to the ball and it's faster to barehand it to skip the whole transfer situation. Or if you knock the ball down or dropped it and you have to pick it up off the ground to throw. Either way, you wanna push the ball into the ground. And if it's on the ground, it doesn't really have momentum the way that the ball would if it was being hit into your glove, for example. So in this case, you can use gravity to your advantage. So you run up to it, you cover the ball with your hands and you still see this all the way too. You're looking at it as you're doing it. Get your fingers around it like I mentioned before, but literally push it into the ground in your finger still, still not in your palm, but this sort of naturally makes your fingers squeeze around the ball and get your grip. Now we never wanna white knuckle it, you know, squeeze the ball so hard that there's tension in our arm, but like anything else in softball, you need to be relaxed and controlled yet firm. And that's what ultimately allows you to generate more pop and power in anything you're doing. So whether you barehand the ball or it's in your glove and you're transferring, if you're in a hurry, just stay focused and you can get a good release on the ball efficiently. So that's the physical and mental side of gripping the ball. Master the basics and match the speed of the game. That's the double play tip of the week. You've been listening to Believe in Softball. Reminder, the show is available anywhere you get your pods. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and Believe.com. Subscribe, share, rate, and review the show if you can wherever you're listening. Again, I'm on Twitter at JennaBacera01 and Instagram at JennaBacera. Hit me up. Thanks again for listening and catch you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.